Well, good evening. Good evening. Much better. One more time to make sure everyone's paying attention. Good evening. Much better. You know, it's so good to see you guys fellowshipping and enjoying each other's company and connecting. And that's really what we're all about here at Calvary Chapel. Just connecting, first of all, first and foremost, in our relationship with God. That's primary. But secondarily, and just about as important, is connecting with one another. And uh, fellowshipping, investing in one another's lives through relationship and being blessed in your understanding of the word, but also in your sharing of the word and your life with those that share your values and respect and appreciate who God is. And uh, that's a commodity today. That's something very important to us. And so we value that. We continue now in our series of studies that we began, I guess, about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago in First Peter living for God. Last week we saw that we were encouraged by Peter to put our hope in Jesus. To put our hope in Jesus, and we looked at how he broke that down for us, to put our hope in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now this evening we pick it up in chapter 1 and in verse 13, where we're being encouraged by Peter to, to put our hope into action. See, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm putting my hope in Jesus and then just sort of sit down and wait for something to happen. I think a lot of people do that. Oh, what are you doing about finding a job? Well, no, I'm putting my hope in Jesus. Sometimes we need to put our hope into action. And we're going to see what Peter means by that and how he uses phrases and imperatives, encouragements, for us to put into action the things we know are right and true and good. And it's not as if we're called to do these things in our own strength, but we are called, according to our own will, to submit our will to God. And that's really what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the first section we'll be looking at has to deal with living a holy life before God. And then I think we'll have enough time to get into some of living a pure life before men. But let's start in a word of prayer before we get into our study. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because you have made a way where there was no way. You are the way maker. In every area of our lives where we have uh, failed or where we have uh, not been able to be the people that you've called us to be or that we desire to be, you have made a way for us by the Spirit's power, by your will, by your strengthening. You've made a way whereby we can live for you. And that's what we know we're being encouraged in this book to think about, to study, and to apply. And so now, Lord, we give to you our hearts and ask that you would help us to serve you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and also to love our neighbors as ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's start by reading this section. Let's just read verses 13 through 16 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Quoting from Leviticus, from the law. Be holy, because I am holy. 
Now, there are several encouragements here, imperatives, if you will, where Peter wants us to to take our hope in Christ and put it into action. And he gives us a number of ways to do this, and it starts by being self-controlled. In verse 13, it says it this way, as we've already read, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That has everything to do with being self-controlled. I remember my dad used to say to us sometimes, get control of yourselves. Like just the idea of just like, take control of the situation. Don't allow yourselves to be out of control. In being self-controlled, it starts with our thoughts, if you noticed. He says it this way, prepare your minds for action. That requires controlling your thoughts. And it can be difficult at times to take all of those anxious thoughts and weird thoughts and sinful thoughts and bring them under the Spirit's control, to really surrender them to God and say, God, uh, I want you to help me to control my mind. We say worship the Lord with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And when we worship God with our minds, it has to do with preparing our minds for action. Let's talk about what that means practically. Controlling your thoughts is one thing. Well, control the way you think. I mean, how do you do that? Well, let's first of all understand that the mind, when we talk about the mind, we're talking about the center of our knowledge and our understanding, that part of us that thinks. Now, we know that in the cerebrum, the cerebellum, the different parts of the brain, God has designed us to be able to think, to store memory, to be able to react, to respond involuntarily to certain things. But there's an aspect of our mind that we control And it has to do with the kinds of things we dwell on. What we put into our minds. Have you ever heard that phrase, garbage in, garbage out? You put garbage in your mind, you're going to get garbage out. I've noticed that if I watch a spooky movie or some kind of a thriller or horror movie late at night before I go to sleep, chances are when I dream, if it's like some kind of alien movie, in my dreams I'm going to be dealing with fighting aliens on a spaceship somewhere because my mind has taken in this, this, this stuff. And, you know, I happen to enjoy those kind of movies, but what always inevitably happens is it affects what I dream about. And in the case of an alien movie, that might just keep me up at night with some bad dreams. But when you start, start to put really sinful, sinful things into your mind, what tends to happen is not even when you go to sleep, even before you go to sleep, throughout the day, All of that garbage that you've taken in, it just sort of stays there. A lot of our battle is really just not putting that stuff into our minds. Now, some of it you can't control. You're walking down the street and and you're exposed to something that maybe in an advertisement or some weird person, you can't control that. You, You try to. But so much of what goes in our mind is really our own fault. You know, it really is. And the mind is the center of our knowledge and our understanding. So what you think, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. What you think about, what you think on, how you think, the things you dwell on, well, that's what we're talking about. If you're going to prepare your minds for action, then you have to limit certain types of influences and increase others. Now, how do you do that? Well, we know from the scriptures in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, We know that our lives are transformed as our minds are renewed by the Word of God. Our minds are renewed, and that renewal takes place through the study of the Word of God. And that's why on Wednesdays and Sundays and other days that we gather, 
we're in God's word because we know that that's the best thing we can do to prepare our minds for action. The kind of action we're talking about, you know, it's not an athletic action. It's an action in terms of putting our hope into action, putting our hope in God, our faith into action. And so uh, I'll just read it for you because Romans says it best. Uh, Paul says in the book of Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship or reasonable service. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be, notice, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, you're going to be able to know God's will and put into action if you allow your mind to be transformed through the study of God's word. And that's why we're here. And so I love the fact that our minds are renewed. You know, just to encourage you, just to encourage you, Because it doesn't take much to renew our minds. You could have dwelled on some really ugly things, violent things, sinful things most of your life. And if you take the time away from those things, put those influences and those thoughts aside for a few weeks and replace them with the things of God, you will be shocked and amazed at how quickly, through the power of the Spirit, your mind can be renewed through the study of God's Word. Amen? I mean, it's true. I just think about language, for example. Before I became a Christian, my vocabulary was somewhat different. Had a lot of adverbs and adjectives that were foul and nasty. And you know something? Over time, just being in God's Word, not being around those influences, not being in those places where people spoke that way all the time, not doing that myself, and being in church and in God's Word and around godly people, very quickly, amazingly, my speech and my vocabulary was cleansed and renewed. And it's not to say that those words aren't still there, that I don't have moments where I think about saying them, but the idea is they are not a part of my normal speech. And that's because my mind has been renewed by the study of God's Word. And and as God renews your mind, it's amazing. It doesn't take that long for your mind to be renewed. So just to encourage you, you may think, oh, Pastor Tim, I've got so much sin in my life. And you do. But the power of God through the teaching of his word can renew your mind, transform your mind. That's a really interesting word. It's not conform, but transform, actually change who you are and the way you think. And so our lives are transformed as our minds are renewed by the word of God. And that's how we control our thoughts. Very simple. So the first step to being a self-controlled person is to control our thoughts. What's the second step? Controlling our emotions. Controlling our emotions. Because emotions aren't really thoughts, they're feelings. Interestingly enough, they, they're connected to the brain as well, a different part of the brain. So it's not to say it really happens in the heart. We, we use the term the heart to describe that part of our brain that has to do with how we feel. But having said that, let's understand when he says, be self-controlled, this takes on a different, uh, a different application when it comes to our emotions. Our soul, that's what we're talking about, our souls. And there's a component to our soul that's, that's the way we think and the way we feel. And when we say our soul, we're actually talking about our consciousness. We're talking about something other than the thinking process. We're talking about who we really are. If it were possible to take your soul out of your body and put it into something else or put it online, uh, the soul doesn't need a body to think and to feel. Of course, it's not, at least at the moment. 
It's probably a good thing. But understand that part of us needs controlling as well. Not just the way we think, but who we really are. Our souls, our emotions. And uh, we read it there, and it it tells us that the soul is the center of our passions and our desires. Who we are, not just how we think, but who we are. And our lives are transformed as our souls are led by the Spirit of God. And of course, that happens through the teaching of of the Word of God as well. But as our souls are led by the Spirit of God, as we take our souls, who we are, our emotions, our passions, our desires, our will, and surrender it to God, we can now be self-controlled. It's kind of a a misnomer because when we say self-control, what we really mean is taking ourselves and putting ourselves under God's control. That's really what we mean when we say self-control. It's not a rebellion against God. It's more of a surrender to God and then God giving us the ability to control ourselves. And in this case, our soul, our emotions. So this is the second step to being a self-controlled person, controlling our emotions. I think of Galatians. And uh, chapter 5, which you're probably familiar with, where we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, it's really the character of of God, God's character, uh, through the power of the Spirit, being fashioned within us. When we talk about being transformed into the image of Christ, when we talk about becoming more Christ-like, what we're really talking about is the Holy Spirit cultivating within us the fruit of the Spirit. See, the fruit of the Spirit is what God builds into us as we surrender to him. And this has a lot to do, more so than the way we think, it has a lot more to do with the way we feel, what we desire, how we act, in more of an emotional or soulish way than a mental way or psychological way. Look what it says here. But the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love, joy. See, these are more of emotional types of things. But they're really spiritual, which affect our emotions. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there we have it. And it says, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I like that. Keep in step. When I hear that, because sometimes it's translated, let us walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, that, that makes a good point. But keeping in step with the Spirit, it, it makes me think of those line dances they dance at weddings. You know, when I was a kid, they had all these line dances that they would do. And now, now I think, I'm trying to think what the, the latest one was. And, and I, we were at a wedding, uh, I guess it was Mike and Christine's wedding, right? About a, year, a little over a year ago now. Where were we? Right? Gosh, long year, hasn't it been? <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> Mike, you to get yourself in trouble. No, but it's been a crazy year, obviously, since then. But that was before all this happened, right? That we were all together. But, you know, they have these line dances where you know, everybody does the same steps and everything. And, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, really young, they did the hustle. And then after that, it was It's Electric, you know, the electric slide. And they always have these things. I can't remember what the latest one is, but the cha-cha-cha or whatever. They have these things. And everybody has to keep in step. You don't keep in step, and you're going to get stepped on, right? So it's a matter of doing the same thing at the same time. And I think of keeping in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is moving, and it's up to us to, to keep in step with where he's going. Move to the left, to the right. Turn around. You know, that idea, when we were really little, it was the hokey pokey. 
the kids, the kids still love that, the hokey pokey. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that what we need to do is keep in step with the Spirit. That means we need to listen and follow His direction. Discern where He's leading. Because if you're out of step with the Spirit, the Spirit's going to be moving in one direction, and you're going to be moving in the other, and you're going to get stepped on, so to speak. So many people think they know what God wants, but they haven't listened. And so God is moving, but they're out of step. And so that, I think, is a, a, way, a good way to think of it. Uh, it has a lot to do with how we feel and uh, our emotions and, and who we are. But our lives are transformed as our souls are led by the Spirit of God. So it says, since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And notice, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. That would be stepping on one another. So when you, when you look at it that way, you realize this is the second step to being a self-controlled person. Control your emotions. Control your, your thoughts. Control your emotions. Then we get to the third thing. And by the way, we've talked about our thoughts. We've talked about our emotions. But now we talk about our beliefs, our faith. And this has to do with the spiritual part of, where, of who we are. This is not just how we think and how we feel, but what we believe. And this supersedes what we think and what we feel. You can think something, but if it's not in concert with your faith, then you know you're thinking incorrectly. You can feel a certain way, like you really want to take out vengeance, but if it's not in step with what God's Word says, then you know it's out of sync with your faith. So... Let's talk about our beliefs and let's look at what it says here back in our text. He goes on to say, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice, what are we to set our hope on? Set our hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This has everything to do with our faith and controlling our beliefs. That is, really putting our faith into practice. Making sure we know what we believe. And that comes back to the word of God as too, as well, because uh, let's face it, faith comes by hearing the word of God. But our spirit is the center of our faith and our hope in Christ. The spirit, the spirit. Um, you know, when we when we think about our faith in Christ, when we, when we talk about our hope in Christ, that's something outside of and greater than the way we think or the way we feel. And sometimes, the way we think and the way we feel are very negative. And because we have faith we're able to not only supersede those negative emotions and thoughts, but we're actually able to renew them and replace them with the truth. Through the study of God's word by faith, we're able to think correctly and believe the right things, even when those things may not be our first reaction to our circumstances. And thank God for that, right? That's what it means not just to be renewed, but to be strengthened and encouraged in the spirit of the Lord. So what he's talking about here has to do with setting our hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It has everything to do with waiting for him to come again, set things right, and everything to do with our faith. Now, our lives are transformed as our spirits are encouraged by the promise of God. The promise of God. Now, if you don't believe in the promises of God, then why are you here? You can't say everything is just so great right now that even if God never did another thing, everything is just the way I want it to be. You can't say that. No one can. We have a faith in things becoming so much better when he returns, amen, when he's revealed. See, if someone said, well, this is as good as it gets, you might think, well, what the heck am I doing here? 
If this is as good as it gets, some days it's okay, some days it's not so great, some days it's horrible. But we have a faith that supersedes that. We put our faith in Christ and our beliefs tell us he's coming again, amen? He's going to be revealed and that's what our hope is in. We're not hoping in things just staying the way they are, status quo. We're looking forward to things becoming so much better than they are right now. And I look forward to that day. I'm sure you do as well. So the third step to being a self-controlled person is to control our beliefs. And by controlling them, what we mean is taking our hope and putting it in the grace of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in anything else, but according to his word, putting our hope in him. Okay, so that's how we can be a self-controlled person. A person who takes himself or herself and puts themselves in God's hands by controlling their thoughts, the study of the word, emotions, by being led by the Spirit, and their faith, their beliefs, by putting their hope in Christ. All right, let's talk about the next thing that we're told. And that's, that has to be looked at first, because without that, none of the other things that we're going to talk about are even possible or remotely worth talking about. In verse 14, and we read it already, it says, As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, for parents of young children especially, or maybe even teenagers, those two words, obedient children, don't always go together, do they? As obedient children, now notice he qualifies that, as obedient children do not conform. We talked about being transformed. But what does it mean to conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance? See, we're no longer in ignorance. We know what's right and what's wrong. The word of God has enlightened us. We've been transformed by the renewings of our mind. So now we know what's right. We know what's wrong. And we're being told to be obedient to what's right and reject that which is wrong. So this requires submitting our lives to God and his word. Not just reading it and knowing it, but living it. Remember, this is about putting our hope and our faith into action. It also requires something very important, rejecting our lives apart from God and his word. That sounds really nice, but it's really hard to do, isn't it? Rejecting our lives apart from God and his word. You see, all of us have had lives apart from God and his word, and all of us have a part of us that wants to live that way. And we're told, and when it comes to that, we're told to be obedient and not to conform to notice the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You had those evil desires your whole life. But you're being told not to give in to those evil desires, but rather to obey God and his word. That's a choice every one of us have to make each and every moment of our lives. And he's telling us it's one thing to have made those choices when you didn't know better. But now that you know better, you're not ignorant anymore. Make sure you make the right choice and are obedient to God's word. He goes on to say in verses 15 through 16, again, this is very practical teaching on how to put your hope into action. This has everything to do with being holy, and I want to qualify that the word holy means separate or different. We tend to think of holy as perfect. God would never encourage you to to be perfect in the sense that you'll never sin when he knows all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, some people would look at this and say, see, God expects holiness. In the context of that word being defined properly, he expects differentness, he expects separateness, but perfect, no. He doesn't expect that. We know what the scripture teaches on that subject. So when we're talking about holy, there were things in the temple that were holy because they were set apart for God's service. 
They were separate, set apart, and different than the regular run-of-the-mill things you use every day. In that context, let's read verses 15 through 16. But just as he who called you is holy, that is separate, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. You see, when I used to read words like that, I said, well, that's impossible. How how am I going to be holy? Well, you can't be holy the way God is holy. But in this context, to be separate and different, as God is separate and different, you can. You can. You can be holy according to this encouragement. See, this requires following the example of God and his word, and it requires following the teaching of God and his word. The example of God and his word, through Jesus Christ, and the teaching of God in his word. So if you follow Christ's example, even imperfectly, but you follow Christ's example of being different and separate, and you follow the teaching of the word of God on this subject, you can be described as holy, as God is holy, set apart, different. You know, when the world notices you're different, you're holy. If the world comes up and says, you're not like everyone else here. Why, why don't you go with us to happy hour every Thursday night or Friday night, you know? Why don't, why don't you talk like the way other people talk around here? Why don't you tell those dirty jokes that everybody else tells? Now, if you say, because I'm holy, you're going to get in trouble. So you can say, because they're not going to understand. So you could just say, I'm separate. I'm different from the world around me because my God has called me to live a holy life. And that probably will not offend them, or it might, but that's the truth, right? So be holy, be different, be, be separate. Then he goes on to tell them to be reverent, to be reverent in verses 17 through 21. We haven't read this yet. Let's read it. Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, that is without bias, live your lives as strangers or pilgrims here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake, and through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Very basic teaching, but very practical and challenging to put into practice. To be reverent, what does that mean to be reverent? We sometimes talk about the fear of the Lord. To be reverent, we talk about being respectful or reverent. Well, that's what we're talking about here, and it requires that we are ultimately accountable to God as our judge. Look at the first, very first part of verse 17. It says it this way. It says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. See, it's understanding up front that you are going to be held accountable. I am going to be held accountable. We're going to be held accountable for the way we live. And God doesn't say, well, I like that guy, so I'm going to let him get away with it. Oh, that, that girl, she's cool, so I'm going to let... Impartial judgment. There's right and there's wrong. And when we stand before God, we're going to be judged according to our actions. Now, as Christians, we're not judged for our sins. Christ took upon himself the judgment of our sins. But our actions are judged before God as either righteous or unrighteous. 
And we know that we're rewarded for those things that we do that are considered to be right and good. And we receive no reward for those things which we do which are unrighteous or sinful. We may be forgiven, but that's not what we're encouraged to do. Just say, well, I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. We need to remember we're ultimately accountable to God as our judge. And he goes on to tell us this, that we need to recognize that this world is not our ultimate destination. We talked about this in this study already. When we talk about pilgrims, or in this case, the word that's used is strangers, but it's the same thing. Notice he says, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, reverent fear isn't being afraid, not in the sense of being terrified. It's being respectful. It's living your life in a way where you respect God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. It's living in that way. And when we do that, as it says here, as Peter encourages us, we're living as strangers here. See, the world doesn't live in reverent fear of God. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? Watch a few commercials during primetime. You'll see the world does not live in reverent fear. The things you'll see, the ungodliness on certain television shows. And again, I think the commercials have gotten so bad that, you know, you're trying to watch a decent show and then the commercial comes on and you're accosted and assaulted with all types of awful behavior. Awful behavior. Sinful behavior. Sodom and Gomorrah behavior. And after a while, it's, it really grieves you. I, I watch less and less regular television because of the commercials. More and more, I enjoy just watching streaming services where I can sort of control what I see and what I watch and not have to be subjected to who knows what's going to happen in the next five minutes. You know, goes the commercial. What am I going to be seeing? What are my kids going to be watching? What, what am I going to be exposed to in just the next few minutes? And honestly, when I see this word, we are living as strangers here with reverent fear. I think sometimes we forget that we're pilgrims. I think we forget we're strangers. We're not really supposed to fit into this world. And we don't. And we get upset. Oh, I remember when I was young. This, this. Listen, there was never a time, young or old, where you fit in here. This world is corrupt. It's evil. And it doesn't respect or revere God. And if you do, you're a stranger. You're consider- considered strange by those around you. You don't fit in. Get used to it. Be separate. Come out from among them and be ye separate, the scriptures tell us. So so that's what I'm trying to drive home. That's what it really means, part of what it means to be reverent. Remembering that this world is not your ultimate destination. You don't belong here. You belong in heaven. Amen? He's creating a place there for you. In his father's house, there's many rooms. So that's where we belong, not here. Now... All of this also requires recognizing that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read in verses 18 through 19, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or or, or defect. What we're talking about is how we're redeemed. And in order to understand the scripture, You and I, we need to understand what it means to be redeemed. About the best thing I can give you in today's culture would be to pay off your mortgage or or your car loan or, for some of you, your student loans. That's about the best way I can describe it to you. It's like someone comes along and says, oh, by the way, your mortgage is paid. Oh, by the way, your car is paid off. Your student loans are all paid for. You don't need to pay anything anymore. 
In the ancient times, you would redeem things that were pawned, if you will, or, or, or that were, you borrowed to, in order to purchase. You would redeem them by having the resources, perishable resources, to pay them off. He uses that word redeem, which generally was done with silver, sometimes with gold. But he uses that word redeem to make us understand that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, we've been purchased back to God. Are you with me? The debt has been paid. That's why Christ said, it is finished from the cross. In Greek, that word means paid in full. Paid in full. We've been redeemed. Can I hear it? Amen? We've been redeemed. I remember a song many years ago. Now, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's a simple song, but it makes it clear. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. To redeem is to liberate or to deliver through the payment of a ransom, if you will. Our Savior's blood is more precious than any earthly treasure, like silver or gold. And he says this, I like the way he says it, and this is so true. We were redeemed from what? What were we redeemed from? From the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. The futile existence of trying to live apart from God, or trying to live and please God by your own actions. We've been redeemed from that. That's been paid off. We don't need to worry about that anymore. That's, that's not a part of our lives. You know, I, I can remember how I felt when we paid off our mortgage. I, I really, it's a good feeling. Let's just put it that way. One day you say, I don't have to make those payments anymore. And maybe when you paid off your car, you felt that way. And some of you probably five, ten years later, you're still paying student loans. It's a good feeling when those debts are paid. But that's an earthly experience. Imagine the spiritual. That's what we're talking about. The spiritual redemption by the blood of Christ, redeeming us from what can only be described as an empty life that was in desperate need of redemption. This is a beautiful picture of the Passover lamb from the Old Testament in Exodus 12. See, what he's doing is he's using Jewish imagery when he says, redeem with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. They would have to take as perfect a lamb as they can find and sacrifice that lamb, and that blood would be the sacrifice of the Passover for their sins. And that was just a symbol of the sacrifice of Christ, the Passover lamb, on the cross. And he, of course, was symbolized by the lamb, and that's why John said, Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So that's what we're talking about here. It's what Peter's mentioning. It requires us recognizing that truth. And uh, our Savior lived, of course, the perfect life as a man, God, but as a man, lived the perfect life. And then he shed his blood to redeem us. So that's what we're talking about here. Redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's uh, the center of our faith, really. But, of course, being reverent requires that we have been redeemed. If you haven't been redeemed, you can't be reverent. You can't do any of these things. And it also requires us recognizing that this was always God's plan of salvation for us. See, I think this alleviates a lot of concern when someone figures out that there was never a time when God didn't know that we would sin and need to be saved. That just takes the pressure off. It wasn't as if God was so shocked one day. And he said, oh my goodness, I can't believe what's going on here. There was never a time when God didn't know that we would sin and need to be saved. There was never a time when God didn't know that Jesus would have to die on the cross. It's plan A. It's not plan B. And because of that, we read in verse 20, 
He was chosen before the creation of the world. So before any of this was created, he was chosen for this purpose. But he was revealed in these last times for your sake. So Christ came in the last days, of course now nearly 2,000 years ago. But he came, but he was revealed after having been chosen before all of creation to come and to die on a cross. That was always God's plan. See, when God was creating man, it wasn't like he was surprised when man fell. Man fell, but it didn't surprise God. It was always his plan to die for us. Amen? Then in verse 21, which you've already read, this is how we're saved. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So we've been talking about living a holy life before God, and of course this requires recognizing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior by faith. If you don't put your faith in Christ, you're not saved. Oh, how can you say that? How can you say that, Pastor Jim? How can you say that someone's not saved? I don't. I'm just reading what the Bible tells me about how we're saved and redeemed. What the Bible teaches me is that through him, not through anyone else, through him we believe in God. Through him. And who, who is that? Who raised him from the dead. God who raised Jesus from the dead and what? Glorified him. And so your faith, our faith, and hope are in God. And so living a holy life before God requires that we do all of these things. Self-control, obedience, holiness or separateness, and reverence. But you know, after having given our lives to Christ in this way, the second part of our hope and our faith in Christ becomes evident. And and this second part is truly the second part. It's it's not the primary part. The primary part is living a holy life before God in the way that we've talked about it. If we respond to God and his word the way we've already discussed this evening, then the next thing that happens should be quite clear. We should be able to live pure lives before men, before men and women. We should be able to live in a way that's pure before men and women if we're living holy lives before God. And here's what we read. And we're just going to look at two. We'll pick it up uh, next week because there's more. But uh, I just want to look at just two aspects of this. And the first is to be loving. I think that's pretty obvious, to be loving. Look at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For, and then he goes on to quote Isaiah, and uh, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So what we're talking about now is sort of a, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so now that you are saved, now that you are holy, now that you are living a holy life before God, what comes next? How do you put your hope and your faith into action now? You've already put your faith in Christ. What happens next? You see, the problem is there's people that go just that far. But remember the two great commandments? It's to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. And then what's the second To love our neighbors as ourselves. These are the two great commandments, and all the law and the prophets hang on them. So 
This is just as important as what we've already studied, to be loving. This requires obedience to the truth of living a holy life before God, to actually do what you say you will do, to follow through. God purifies us so that we can live pure lives before men. God enables us to sincerely love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, that's the only reason you can. But notice it says, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. That's that Philadelphia type of love, brotherly love. That phileo, that that is a Greek word that means a brotherly love. So he's saying... So that you have, this is something you already have, love for your brothers, a brotherly love. And then he says, because you have a brotherly love, go one step further, love one another deeply from the heart. So you have this brotherly love. What is he saying, though? He's saying, don't stop there. Go to the next step. God commands us to love one another deeply from a pure heart. And this is the Greek word agapeo or agape. So that's a different kind of love. The word deeply means to stretch out the hand earnestly, fervently, or intensely. That is, with a lot of intention. And pure means a clean, blameless, innocent, free from corrupt desire, sin and guilt kind of a love. And that is agape. That is the kind of love that God has for us. And we're being told that because we've been purified, because we have been made his children, through the power of the Spirit, we can therefore not only just love our brothers, but love one another deeply from, a, from the heart. And by the way, in that translation, it could all be, also be translated from a pure heart. A pure heart. That's when it says heart there, a pure heart. So that's what we're talking about here. And only God can do that work through us. In fact, we're told in verses 23 through 25, which we've read already, that we've been born again. We've been born again. Now, some Christians don't think you need to be born again, though Jesus said very clearly, you must be born again. We've talked about this already, the new birth in in the previous study. Being born again. Notice, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And as a result of responding to the word of God, we can be born again of the Spirit. And that's what Peter wants us to remember. This requires rebirth, but this rebirth comes through the preaching of God's living word. No one comes to know Christ unless you preach his word. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. God gives us a changed mind and a new life conformed to the will of God. Amen? God gives us a life that is immortal and eternal like the word of God itself. And God rescues us from a life that is mortal and earthly. And thank God for that, and that's why we read in the rest of that verse the quote from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, and this just describes life without God, life without Christ. All men are like grass. By, by the way, I can see the grass on my lawn now after the snow has melted, you know, and I'm looking out there and I'm realizing, you know, the grass dies in the winter. It comes back in the spring, but it dies. You know, and, the, and here what Isaiah is saying is plants Grass comes, goes, it dies. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Not too many flowers out there right now. Grass withers and the flowers fall. But notice this in contrast to that kind of life, that futile, empty way of life, the word of the Lord stands forever. 
And so God's word in your life makes you an eternal being. You will live forever and ever. And the quality of that life, which we talked about last week together, is such that it's everlasting life. It's not just a long-lasting life, an everlasting life. And this is the word that was preached to you. Finally, and then we'll close with this. Actually, you know what? Maybe we'll just stop right there. I don't know. I, I kind of want to go a little bit more here because, uh, but you know what? We got to do part two anyway because it goes a little bit further with this, this idea of living a pure life before men. So I'm just going to stop there. Uh, we're going to talk about being pure. We're going to talk about uh, going on to uh, be separate, which we've talked a little bit about already, and be good and what that means and how we do that. And then that'll take us to, I guess, chapter 2, verse 12. But for this evening, that's enough to think about, certainly a lot. We end with this thought to be loving. To be loving, and the only way we can be loving is to be the way that God is, and the only way we can be like God is for God to dwell on us richly by faith, to give our lives to him and have him indwell within us by the Holy Spirit. So we submit our lives to him, and he fills us with his life as we're born again, and then all of a sudden, all of these things we're talking about, self-control, obedience, holiness, reverence, loving, all of these things not only become possible, but they actually become necessary as proving that we have actually experienced who God is in the eternal. And I think you'll find that this is the way that God has intended for us to put our hope into action. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement of how we are truly to live and live our lives. And we need, we need your spirit, the power of your spirit, through the teaching of your word, to be able to make the right choices and submit to your will. We know we have the power of the spirit within us. You wouldn't call us to do something you haven't empowered us to do. Now we just need the determination to submit our lives to you and live our lives for you to glorify you with our lives by putting our hope in you and also living our lives as pure before others, living our lives in a way that honors you and preaches the gospel by our actions. Lord, we ask that you would do this work and continue to do this work through the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.